We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 21 this morning. Acts chapter 21 is our scripture reading this morning. Luke records here by the superintending work of the Holy Spirit, writing, Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, and following, in the following day to Rhodus, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went abroad and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. In finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy's, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we, who were Paul's companions, departed and came to Caesarea, and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who, who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that, from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I, am, for I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And, we had, and when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who had, have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. 
But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that they may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law in this place, and furthermore he, has also, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains, and he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the, of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! Then, as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, Sicilia and a citizen of no mean city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when they were, there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, and I'll just read through verse 2, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. We're in Genesis chapter 41 this morning. If you would turn there in your Bible, I'd like you to follow along with me as I read and comment on these verses. We continue the, what I call the saga of Joseph. 
Now, maybe you literary experts out there might quibble with my choice of the word saga, but we'll say it's a story of a hero who overcomes a great adversity. But really, this is the story of a greater hero, and that is God and his marvelous works toward the children of Israel, not just for a man. Well, it wasn't only Pharaoh's servants who had dreams, but also Pharaoh himself. We look in chapter 41, it says, Then it came to pass at the end of two full years. Remember, this is when the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him and left him in prison. Behold, after that time, Pharaoh had a dream, and and he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. As you may expect, a dream is kind of strange. You've had some strange dreams, I'm sure, in your, in your life, or things don't quite fit together um, uh, and things like that. Well, he had that here, but this was a dream that was given by God. God laid this thought in his mind. The cows coming up out of the river most certainly speak of the Nile River. The Nile is that uh, river whence Egypt would get and still does get much of its nourishment and uh, irrigation uh, and the silt that comes uh, down uh, to it, to the end of it, and refreshes the land. And so the cows coming out of there talking about the uh, source of the sustenance of the land. He says he slept, verse 5, he slept and dreamed a second time and suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. And behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. There's another thing. When I read that, indeed it was a dream, I have to wonder if he was feeling that terrified feeling you get when you're having a dream and you think it's real, but then you wake up and it's not real. Phew! I'm glad that wasn't real. (laughs) Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day. Good that that finally happened. Verse 10, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, we each had a dream. And one night, he and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man, he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass that just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him, just as we read the last time. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. You know, he has nothing to lose at this point and wants to get an answer for what this dream is supposed to mean. And so he called and sent for Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon, and he shaved changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. Just a quick note about that. They would have uh, been culturally more, um, they would have liked the shave, clean-shaven look, not the hair look with facial hair for whatever reason. 
And of course, he was probably a little scraggly, having been in prison there and changed his clothing and so on, and uh, got cleaned up and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it's said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I stood on the bank of the river. I'm not going to read this. He recounts again all the way down through uh, verse 24. And we'll pause there just for a moment. So not only Pharaoh's servants, but also Pharaoh himself, two dreams that the wise men could not interpret. If you're familiar with your scriptures, you know that this is just like what happened with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel in the book of Daniel. Several times there are dreams there. You had the statue prominently, and then also the dream about the tree that was chopped down to the stump. And Daniel gave interpretations of those dreams uh, as well. Uh, So when it seemed that no one would be able to figure out Pharaoh's dream, the butler remembered Joseph, the dream interpreter, and told Pharaoh that he he indeed might be able to interpret the dream. So they got Joseph all cleaned up, as we read, according to Egyptian custom. But he plainly stated that his dream interpreting ability was not from himself, but it was from the Lord. Why from the Lord? Well, the Lord is the one who gave the dream. He's the one who knows the meaning of it. Both dreams, he explains, have to do with this. Verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. Obviously, there are two, but they mean the same thing as what he's explaining here. They mean the same one and the same thing. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows, which came up after them, are seven years, and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land." So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice, because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. So we're familiar with the seven years of plenty and of famine. God showed us through the dream what his sovereign will was through, for the nation and the surrounding territories. He says, and and it looks to me like um, it's a little bit awkward here because now Joseph is going to give some unsolicited advice. Here's the man in the prison giving unsolicited advice. So he says, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. Hmm. 
So he counsels Pharaoh, open an agriculture department and uh, have a taxation system, 20% tax off the years of plenty so that there would be enough in the years of famine. Now, that's interesting if you think about it. 20% means that during the years of plenty, they would be consuming 80%. I haven't really thought about this before, but boy, that's a lot of consumption in those seven years. When they drop from that amount down to one quarter of that amount, the 20% that's left for the next years, well, maybe they were able to produce some in those years of famine, but they're really cutting back, aren't they? To be able to survive, they had to cut back, even though they had saved that much. So uh, Joseph counsels to appoint a wise man over the business. How did Joseph get this wisdom? He's sitting in prison, kind of just thinking about these things and uh, gaining, gaining wisdom. And uh, who, you know, we don't know exactly uh, how he was learning and growing as a young man in the prison there. He was now, we'll find out, 30 years of age. And so he gave the counsel. Pharaoh thought the advice was great, verses 37 and 38. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Now, indeed, it is the case that the Spirit of God was with and in Joseph, but I'm not sure that Pharaoh understood it the way that we do with the capital S. You understand there what I'm saying? could have been that he was thinking the spirit of the gods, spirit of the Elohim, plural. Um, but do note that it may be that he's familiar, he's a world leader, and maybe he is familiar with the monotheistic Jewish people, the little group that's uh, up to his north and east. And remember that Joseph said, it is not in me, God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. He did not say Ra would give an answer of peace. The sun god, he said, Elohim will give him an answer of peace. The Adonai of the Hebrews will give an answer to Pharaoh. So perhaps Pharaoh is at least tipping his hat to that view of, of God, who, which is the true view that Joseph held. And of course, they were shot through with all kinds of idolatry there in Egypt. So uh, certainly didn't know much about the Trinity, that's for sure. But they knew this much. Joseph has some kind of connection with somebody. Uh, this is very strange uh, that he's able to immediately tell us what this dream is. So Joseph immediately is promoted to be really the prime minister over the entire nation. There's probably never been in world history such a promotion from a place of I mean, diminution, a place of prison, all the way up to almost the top dog, as it were, in power. The text gives us some additional details here. It says, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Boy, Potiphar and his wife must have been just uh, heated up about this. Uh, couldn't take it. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and his, he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. 
So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. That is amazing, isn't it? And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath Paneah. So he gave him an a, a Egyptian name. He also provided him a, an Egyptian wife named Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. He was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt, laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. Now just pause and think for a minute. If you were charged with, I mean, I don't know how big the nation was at that time, but you're in charge of the logistics of gathering food from a whole nation. What do you do? How do you store it so it doesn't spoil? Do you rotate it? Uh, you have to build thing, places to store this stuff. Well, I mean, what do you do? That's quite something. It's a, it's a huge... Well, that was his full-time job, evidently, to make sure that... And, and, and not a bad job to have, to make sure that the nation will be fed for the seven years of famine and all the nations around about. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. So Manasseh means forgetful. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. So he had sons forgetful and fruitful, the names. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says, to you do. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. I didn't research this, but maybe you can uh, tell me around this time, 1884 B.C., if there uh, is any record in history of such a famine. Maybe some of you young people could... Uh, do that as a little homework assignment for me and see what you find around 1884. Uh, so that actually would have been, 1884 was when this, begin, this first seven years began. So add seven years to that, or should I say subtract seven years from that, and then go from there and see what you find uh, in Egyptian history, if we have any record of that. Um, the, the selection of a wife here makes us wonder if she was a godly person. Perhaps Joseph taught her about the true God uh, prior to their marriage or after they uh, were married, but we don't know that for sure uh, in, in, uh, based on what the text says. So uh, it happened as God said. The world conditions were such that there was plenty and then there was famine. And this sets the stage for a number of things. First of all, for a reunion between Joseph and his brothers after two decades. It sets the stage for the whole nation of Israel to be preserved and moved to Egypt during the latter part of the famine. 
which then in turn sets the stage for the book of Exodus some hundreds of years later when Israel was in bondage to Egypt. And might I add, God arranged so that Egypt or so that Israel would go into Egypt so that he could call his son out of Egypt so that he could then have Matthew write out of Egypt, I have called my son in likeness to what happened in history. And that he could send his son there in his early days to preserve his life. Egypt became a preserver unwittingly to the Jewish people and to Christians by being a place of refuge for Jesus during those times when his life was being sought by King Herod. So all of that, and, and besides that, I don't mention this in the notes, but God sent, was sending Israel away from the land of Canaan for a period of around 400 years because, among other things, he was allowing the, the iniquity of the Amorites to be fulfilled, at which time God would send Israel out in great numbers, having multiplied in Egypt, to conquer the land and to be his instrument of punishment to those pagans who were there in the land, offering child sacrifice and other things that they were doing. So one lesson here is that God used Joseph through great difficulty. God does that sort of thing, doesn't he? He can use you too during heavy trials. My encouragement to you would be do not give up. Do not give up. Keep living godly in Christ Jesus and let God do the elevating. You might be in prison for a while, so to speak, but let God elevate you and bring you out of the trial that you're experiencing as he did with Joseph. Even if other people mean it for evil toward you, God can turn it to good. Another lesson that uh, naturally arises from this text of Scripture is this, and I've just put it in the uh, notes there for you, and I just use one word, save, save. I'm just talking about financial management now. I'm not talking about spiritual salvation, but that we need, obviously, more than monetary savings. But it's interesting. I've been hearing a lot lately about how many people are living paycheck to paycheck, 60% of Americans, according to one recent statistic, 58, somewhere around there, are living paycheck to paycheck, meaning they don't have enough finances for a future expense that uh, will most likely come down the pike until they get paid next uh, Friday or whatever. If a larger item in their home breaks, which it will, or something needs to be replaced, uh, because it's rusting out, which it will, then, uh, especially on in Michigan roads, um, you know, what are you going to pay with? Do you have the money to do that repair today? So a classic example, you know, your hot water heater breaks, and it's going to cost, I don't know how much it costs these days, <laughs> you know, to do that repair? Do you have the money sitting waiting for that to happen, for that to be done? Uh, Or are you going to be without hot water for a while? Now, listen, hot water is a luxury in a way, isn't it? Pretty nice. But uh, that's just a modern expectation that we have. Joseph set aside 20% of the agricultural production of the nation. He implemented it in the form of a tax, which I'll call charitably forced savings. 
Okay. Um, I wish taxes today were forced savings instead of forced wasting, but I uh, digress. Uh, not all of it is wasting, of course. Some is, many, much of it goes to good purposes. Some goes to very bad purposes. But in any case, you too can save 10 to 15% or even 20% of your income. I, I just ran into this last week. I was hearing some financial guru or something, and they were saying, you know, you should save 10 to 15% to avoid being in this paycheck-to-paycheck situation after a few months of saving 10 to 15%, you won't be living paycheck to paycheck anymore. And that's a good thing. Um, you know, along with giving to the Lord's work in the church, this requires you to live with less, less than your neighbors have, okay? You're not going to be able to keep up with the Joneses because the Joneses don't give 10 or 15% to the church and they might not put 10 or 15 or 20% into their savings, so yes, you are, your life is going to look different than their life does. And we help one another. You know, I mean, I delight to see moms passing baby clothes to the next one, not only to help the next baby, but to get rid of it out of their house. You know, they don't want to keep, keep hanging around. Some people keep those baby clothes until you take them out of the bag and they're just moth-eaten and they've disappeared. What's the point of doing that? Put them to good use. Let somebody else be the steward of them if you cannot steward them properly anymore. But in any case, we help one another so that we can live on less. But families that don't have this philosophy will have an, evidently have more, more cars, bigger home, more furniture, and all of that sort of stuff. But that's not what Christians do because we're prudent and also we are uh, charitable. Most of us have the ability to give, and most of us have the ability to save. Most of us are in the top 10% of the world's richest people. According to some data, almost all of us are in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. Now, there's, I don't know how they got all this figured out, but uh, I saw this number, thirty-four dollars to $36,000. If you make more than that in a year you are in the top 1% of the world's wage earners. You think, how can that be? Well, that's because you've lived in such isolation, you don't realize that people live on $1.50 a day, or 5 bucks a day, or even 10 bucks a day. I mean, how much is that in a year? That's not even $4,000. So we have wealth. God has blessed us. We are in a... A, a veritable promised land flowing with milk and honey, even if the gallons of milk are a little more expensive lately. Okay, At least the chickens have start, decided to reduce their prices of eggs. Amen, somebody says. <laughs> yeah, so the lesson there is to save. Well, in my notes, I've called the next uh, part of the notes here journey number one. Uh, Benjamin is left home and Simeon is held in captivity. So that's in chapter 42. So after this kind of setup occurs and Joseph has been elevated to power, gone from the prison to princehood, we revert and the scene goes back to the land of Canaan and Jacob. When he saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? This is always humorous to me. 
And I'll just say, sometimes, you know, there's time for uh, thinking, and then there's time for doing. You're not going to get anything done by sitting there looking around at each other saying, what should we do? Quickly figure out what you should do, and then go about doing it, okay? As our former pastor said, you pray with action. There's something not quite right about somebody who's facing a problem and just says, well, let's pray about it. That's true and good. We should pray about it. But if the answer is evidently you must do something, then do that thing and don't be lazy about it. It's not like your prayer is going to bring somebody else along and says, look, I'll do that for you. You have burdens to bear and you just need to bear them. That's what life is. Sometimes you have to buckle down and work, especially us able-bodied people. You know, we, we clearly have to do what uh, is necessary to be done. You know, I don't want to pick the weeds in my garden or in my flower beds. Well, look, we've been doing that as a race since the fall into sin. And you can pray, God, help me with the weeds, and how he's going to help you is he's going to get you out of your chair and and get your knee pad out, and you're going to start picking weeds. That's how he's going to help you. So pray with action. Do something. Why are you sitting here doing nothing? You've got to do something. And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So the situation's getting a bit dire, obviously. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Well, why ten? Well, because... Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. You know, the last time I sent Joseph with those ten, (laughs) or or one of my sons with those other ten, look what happened to him. So I'm not going to risk that again. Um, Benjamin may have become his kind of surrogate favorite son. And so they went to Egypt to buy grain among those who uh, journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also, you know, obviously, in that region of the world. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Uh Uh-oh. Something has happened here. They did not realize that they just fulfilled the dream from chapter 37, verses 5 through 8. Remember when Joseph had that dream and he said, your sheep, my sheep stood up and your sheep, sheep's bowed down to me and they said, what are you talking about? You know, you're just a kid. So it came to pass. They had ridiculed him then, 20 years earlier. Now they were eating crow, so to speak. Funny little thing, I, was, I run an editor on this, the little, it's a spell check, advanced spell checker in Word, and uh, it comes to they were eating crow and it suggested that I change it. To they were eating crows, <laughs> plural. It's like, that's not the phrase. <laughs> I don't know why it chose that, but I guess the AI failed on that one. Uh, they were eating crows, all right. Uh, now Joseph tested his brothers uh, by accusing them of being spies. Now, isn't that every? Isn't that? Doesn't that happen a lot in international relations? Somebody goes to a nation and the nation doesn't like them, so they accuse them of being a spy. Sounds like Russia today with what they do. Anyway, uh, he recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Can you imagine how out of context they would be or, or he would be to them? 
like they're expecting their brothers probably was he was sold into slavery. He's probably was given hard labor and he's dead by now for sure. At least they hoped he was because they lied that he was before. And uh, now they come to him. He's he looks like an Egyptian. He he speaks like one. He acts like one. He's in charge of the nation. They and he's twenty years older than what he was before. No chance that they would that they would recognize him probably. And uh, so he treats them roughly. He says to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Joseph then remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. True. We are honest men. False. Your servants are not spies. That's true. But to, for them to say we're honest men, I mean, they could just leave that out. You know, just don't lie about it. Um, but he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. So he focuses on the spy accusation still. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today and one is no more. They've been living that charade for two decades. But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. In this manner you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Got to make them sweat it a little bit here. Then Joseph said to them for the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine to uh, your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so that your words will be verified and you shall not die. So they probably sat there and said, Why did we have to mention Benjamin, (laughs) Uh, the youngest one who's still at home? So Joseph makes them prove that they are who they say they are. And uh, they did so. They followed, they followed his plan. They said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. You see, their conscience was bothering them after 20 years. Sin does that. It, what I'm saying here is, is not, I'm, I'm not saying that sin comes back to bite you in the, in the way like bad karma necessarily. Obviously, sin has consequences, okay? We understand that. But it's not always the case that God permits you to be punished in this life in accordance with the sins that you've done in this life. But you know what happens with sin is when you have a sensitive conscience at all, the past sin calls up your guilty conscience now and again, and it comes back and back. So if you sin less, you will avoid that problem more. I just use that as a way of illustration. When you sin now, it's going to have consequences, if not the kind of consequences of you know, you know, 
you do something bad, so something bad happens to you. The bad thing that happens is you have to carry guilt with you when you sin. And that is a tough load to carry. In fact, in the end, you cannot carry it whatsoever. It will crush you at the end of your life and when you face judgment, if that judgment is not taken by Christ. Um, he is the advocate that stands, like uh, him, the hymn that we sang earlier today. We, uh, we can shake off our guilty fears if we're in Christ. Well, amid their conversation, Joseph was listening in Hebrew and became overwhelmed with emotion that his brothers were showing some guilt about what they had done to them. So he turned himself away in verse 24 and wept. Can you imagine? Then he returned to them again. He didn't expect them to come. This was a a surprise probably, certainly the timing of when they came. And now he's seeing the fulfillment of God's promise of his prediction right before his eyes. So he took Simeon from them and bound him before them. Now, why Simeon? Well, Simeon was the second. Reuben was the first. Reuben, verse 22 says, Did I not speak to you saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. So interesting that that Joseph would take Simeon instead of Reuben. At least Reuben put in a good word for his kid brother. But Simeon, not, not so much. So the brother is Simeon, everybody goes back home, and uh, Joseph is very kind to them, gives them plenty of grain, and gives their money back to them. They find this out, and now that bothers their conscience even more, because they're like, boy, now not only are we going to be spies, this guy thinks, but we're also going to be thieves. However, they got their money back, it wasn't made clear. So they come back to Jacob, and... Uh, in the end here of the chapter, and they, uh, everybody found their money. Verse 36, Jacob said, their father said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. You know, then Reuben hatches a wonderful plan. Kill my two sons if I do not bring Benjamin back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. So it's like, okay, I'll take Benjamin, but if he doesn't come back, then you can kill my, your two grandsons. Something doesn't seem right about that either. That's just crazy uh, what they are doing here. But this is the situation they've gotten themselves into. See, if they wouldn't have lied and done what they did back with Joseph, they wouldn't have had any of this problem. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. That's from his mother of the four wives. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. And so we're left at the end of the chapter wondering, are we, are, what are they going to do now? Because they're going to run out of grain seven years. They need some more supply. And so we'll have to see that in chapter 43. Hopefully, we will not suffer the depth of trials that Joseph did. On the other hand, in our humility, we would never imagine or expect to attain such heights of earthly glory either, as Joseph did. You know why? Because we're not in the Abrahamic line. The Mosaic or the Abrahamic covenant does not rest on us personally. The destiny of the nation of God's people and the coming of the Messiah does not depend on us personally. It did in the nation of Israel and on Joseph. 
We may not save a nation from starvation, but you know what? You do have a household. You do have a family. You do have a progeny. You do have descendants. You, some of you have grandchildren or even great-grandchildren or those that you've adopted as your grandchildren or children. We can take steps to see to it that our families are properly cared for both now and even past our demise and that they are spiritually well. We can save and we can talk about salvation and we can emphasize those things in our homes. We're also blessed to be part of the church community. Many of us as direct members of the church and others as collateral beneficiaries of the church. Again, if you're not in a member of the church, you're receiving blessings because of your association with it. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. In a way, God has prepared uh, Christians beyond measure in things that truly, truly matter. So although we can't say we're blessed like Joseph with earthly fame and power, we are blessed with all those spiritual blessings in the heavenly places beyond earthly. How would you, uh, if you were in Joseph's shoes, or perhaps let's make it a little more mundane, what about if you're in your own shoes? How are you going to implement those spiritual disciplines in your life that we talked about earlier this morning, about Bible intake and prayer and and all of the other things? Uh, You know, whether you're in prison or you're in school or you're um, done with school or you're in the workplace or you're retired, you can implement those spiritual disciplines wherever you're at. And I suspect that uh, we would see that in Joseph's life. I don't know what he had when he was in prison as far as access to divine revelation, but he knew God, and God evidently had given him some insight and some wisdom in his life. So maybe he'll do uh, the same uh, for us. God does do things, however, that seem very unlikely in our world, doesn't he? And you think um, it's unlikely that God might uh, rescue his people from this fallen place? You think it unlikely that God could save a person who has been given over to a terrible lifestyle? It's not impossible. God raised up Joseph from the pit and the prison princehood, and he can do much more in our lives too. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we're grateful for this account. It's a a pleasure to read in a way because of how we see that uh, Joseph was vindicated, how you vindicated him, and how you supplied for his every need. It's uh, in a way a simple narrative I pray that a few of these lessons and things that we've talked about will be impactful to us. And Lord, today change us, both in these regards and with regard to taking further steps in the spiritual disciplines, which we talked about in the prior hour. And give us a rest this afternoon, good fellowship, and time back here tonight with one another, and good time with family as well. Thank you again for, for Dad. For fathers who uh, did the best that they could to raise us, train us, discipline us, educate us in this life and uh, are a picture of you, our Heavenly Father. And uh, some mirrored that picture better than others, 
but we are grateful, Lord, for what you've provided for us in terms of earthly families, homes, parents, and especially fathers today. Help us to be grateful for them in Jesus' name. Amen.